Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrences. Concurrences is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrences is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Now for your last panel, the closing discussion. Uh, Joe, any time you want to yes, start. Yes, I am ready to start. Last panel. Last panel. Uh, I am Joe Astoyich. I am a partner in the DC office of Clifford Chance. My particular focus is antitrust trial work in federal court and administrative agencies, which makes sense because the panel is on tech antitrust litigation. So I was struck by Commissioner Vestiger's trope of having somebody fall asleep. And I have a story I'd like to tell of my own. So I'm going to just steal her trope, tweak it a little bit. And in my story, a client, one of you, falls asleep for a couple of decades. Let me tweak it again, because none of you would ever fall asleep on the job. So let's say a client in the heartland of the US manufacturing company, industrial company, falls asleep and wakes up a couple decades later. And they say, I've been invited to a conference on tech antitrust litigation. Why? I'm a manufacturing company. Why am I here? What do I need to know? So the first thing I think we would all agree is that Silicon Valley has conquered the world. Every business is a tech business. Fair? I'll give you an example, which I think is silly but illuminating. I was walking my dog in Washington, D.C. last summer. It was hot and humid, as Washington, D.C. is often in the summer. And we were going around the block, and there were three or four little kids, six years old maybe, who had a lemonade stand. And I thought, that's nice, it's hot, I'm going to have a glass of lemonade. And they were raising money for charity. They had a little sign that had the price of the lemonade, and then it said, no cash. (laughs) So there were a group of little kids who were six years old who were only accepting Venmo or some other payment app. And I thought, if these little kids are using tech, every business is a tech business. So that's obvious, right? So the client wakes up and the client says, all right, what do I need to know? First thing you need to know is there are more than 100 antitrust investigative and adjudicative regimes around the world, which sometimes converge, and as we heard today over and over again, sometimes don't. That's complicated. Second thing you probably need to know is pick one jurisdiction. Take the US. We have two federal agencies that have distinct but overlapping antitrust authority, Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission. Then we have several dozen attorneys general that also have jurisdiction over antitrust matters. Then we have private enforcement by plaintiffs of every size and shape imaginable. Aggrieved competitors can sue, as some of you in the room know. Customers can sue. Customers can sue in nationwide class actions 
Customers of customers, indirect purchasers, can sue in nationwide class actions under the federal and under the state laws, the same state laws the attorneys general are enforcing. Then we have opt-out plaintiffs, big corporate clients that hire their own counsel and file their own cases, so everybody can sue. That's complicated. What's covered? A pretty broad array of economic activity, as we all know. Mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures are covered. We look at not what effect they're going to have, but what they might have, right? It's a hypothetical. We look at overlapping shareholders. We look at interlocking board directorships. We look at standard setting agreements. We look at actual or perceived cartel agreements that affect price, output, innovation, or any other competitive metric. And if there's not a consummated agreement, we also look at, in various jurisdictions, attempted agreements, incipient agreements, price signaling, and other things that fall short of a consummated agreement. We look at willful acquisition or maintenance of monopoly power or dominance. We look at the attempt to willfully acquire and maintain monopoly power. We look at just about every possible type of economic activity a company would engage in. So when the client wakes up and says, how do I craft a compliance program to deal with this? And what risk? Can you tell me to go back to sleep? <laughs> go back to sleep and don't worry about it. So with that kind of a, a, a complicated regime, and then we have obviously new issues popping up. The Obama administration in the fall of 2016 issued the human resources guidance, non-competes, no poach, non-solicitation agreements, and so on, were, and still are a strong focus. We have focus on killer acquisitions. We have focus on algorithmic pricing. We have focus on price parity clauses and other agreements uh, preferencing, self-preferencing on double-sided platforms. We are soon to have the first set of antitrust cases involving artificial intelligence. So how do we navigate this maze? So with that, let me introduce the panelists. Judge Anna Reese of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, who I believe was nominated in the spring and confirmed in the spring of 2023, and within about a month had an antitrust merger case on her docket. Within two weeks, <laughs> I was assigned to the ASA Abloy trial, which was a $4.6 billion merger that the DOJ was um, contesting and was going to a bench trial in a month. So um, imagine being the in-house counsel or outside counsel or government counsel who just gets an ECF notice out of the blue that says your case has been reassigned to Honorius and you go to Google and you find out I've been on the bench two weeks and I've never handled an antitrust case in my entire life uh, as a litigator either. So there was, I'm sure, a lot of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next to Judge Reyes, we have Judge Wolf Oberg of the European General Court in Luxembourg, who has had a number of high profile merger matters in particular while a member of the tribunal and in private practice, of course, had one of the leading competition boutiques in Sweden and handled a full range of issues. Next to Judge Olberg, we have a client, an in-house counsel, general counsel, David Tudor for the Naspers Process Group, which is a very large tech investor. I think, David, I read that the company invested some $30 billion in a couple hundred different companies over the last decade or two. Uh, and also operates leading online businesses and classifieds, fintech, 
education, and other areas. So with that, let me throw out a couple of questions. And David, I'm going to start with you, because I suspect your perspective is going to be similar to many people in the room. So I know you had an investigation, without getting into the ugly details, you had an investigation, I think, where you where told me in our lead up to this, that you had a regulator came in and essentially had what appeared to be a fairly preconceived idea of the market structure and how the market operated, which was very different from what your business people perceived. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, how you handled that, how you addressed it. Sure, thanks very much, and thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here, although the weather is a little different from what I'd expected. Though I'm sure that it's much better than the rest of the United States at the moment. I, I'll take that on faith. Um, yeah, we invest in a large number of countries, and um, in a number of countries, we're doing platform inquiries. The one to which you refer was, was, was very interesting because the, the regulator concerned clearly was approaching its investigation into online platforms with a, a set of assumptions about how we operated, how our businesses in that particular country operated, how they shared data with each other, how they operated their businesses together, all of which were fundamentally incorrect. The, the other assumption that was made, I think, was about the structure of the market. And as the investigation progressed, and we obviously engaged with the regulator, there were public hearings, we, we, we tried to shift that perspective. And I think we, we thought we'd done a decent job. We then got to the interim report which came out, which could have well been written before the public hearings had taken place, um, because it clearly just disregarded everything that we'd said, which was um, quite annoying. Um, we then went into a further phase of engagement with, with the regulator, and that proved to be more productive, certainly around the assumptions that, that had been made around how businesses operated, how they, how they, how they cooperated or didn't cooperate together. That, that, I think, we successfully um, disabused the regulator of the assumptions that they made. I think what was, what was more complicated was the discussion around market, um, market structure, and, and that still found its way into the final report. But to tie back, because I'm conscious that we, we're on, on discussing litigation, we got to a position, I think, on that engagement where although it wasn't satisfactory, the alternatives of litigating were so deeply unappetizing because of the time that we would take uh, that, we, that we simply decided that we wouldn't pursue it anymore. I, I still think that the outcome was not, was not correct, but faced with um, a rapidly changing market, the prospect of new entrants, it just simply was going to take too much time, too much energy, too much money to pursue that litigation, and we, we simply lived with the outcome of the process. Yeah, which I think is a common occurrence, right? I think most clients faced with a lengthy piece of litigation, an expensive piece of litigation, litigation that takes up the executive's time for months on end, often decide it's not worth the fight, right? Yep. Um, we all know, Judge Reyes, that economists are involved in every aspect of antitrust litigation. I have cases, and this will be music to compass lexicon ears where where you might have three or four different economists involved in the course of a case. Somebody who's handling class action issues, somebody who's handling market definition, somebody who's handling um, maybe conduct issues or injury, and then somebody else who's handling damages on both sides of a case, 
it's full employment for economists. I know in Asa Abloy, you had a situation where you personally read the expert reports on both sides, and you employed sort of an interesting, somewhat novel procedure. Maybe you can tell us about that. Right, so I knew that um, to keep everyone from totally freaking out, I would have to show that I didn't know how to do some law. Um, and I did have 22 years of experience in complex litigation, so I know my way around expert reports. And the expert reports in this case were, uh, as in a lot of antitrust cases, if not all of them, um, sort of key to what the parties were trying to convey. Um, so what I did is I offered the uh, parties the following, which was before trial started, I had reviewed the expert reports and I said to both sides, if you would like, and both sides have to agree, I will go through all of the questions that I have having read your expert reports. So we had a session with the plaintiffs where I went through all of their expert reports and I, I, didn't, I didn't want answers. I was just, these are the questions that I have so when you're preparing for your trial, you know what's in my mind. So I did that with the plaintiffs and I did that with the defendants and at some point, you know, because I had not only read the expert reports, but I'd read all the citations. So if they cited anything for any proposition, I would go and I would read that as well. And as in most litigation, people sometimes play fast in rules with citations. Um, and if there were contradictions or if things didn't support what the expert was saying, I also told the parties that. Um, and about midway through the first time, I just saw that it was the plaintiffs, I, the government I went through first, and I just saw their eyes just like glazing over and they were just totally like, the opposite of not freaked out. They were all totally freaked out. Um, and what I, what I tried to communicate was, these are just questions that I have. I, I, don't know what the, I don't know how I'm gonna decide anything. These are just questions that I'm gonna have. And the reason I did it was because I feel, I was always very frustrated as a litigant that we would put things in front of a judge. We'd have an argument, yeah. we would have a bench trial, and we had no idea what the judge was thinking. We had no idea what questions they might have, nothing at all. And of course with a jury, you're stuck with that. But I find it's more helpful if I can tell the parties, here are my questions, so they're not just going in blind into a trial. Um, I also actually think it was, um, I don't know this, but I speculate that it was helpful in getting the parties to settle, that I was telling them exactly sort of what my issues were with both sides all along the process so that when they went in to talk settlement, they didn't have to guess as to where I might be thinking. They didn't know what I was gonna do. I didn't know what I was gonna do, but they knew what my concerns were, and I think that that was helpful. So was, I'm curious, was this on the record, or was this? It was on the record. On the record. Uh, it was on the record. It was, um, uh, so there's a transcript of all of the questions. How detailed did you get? So you, you said if there were inconsistencies or citation issues, were you in effect telling them, I see some weakness here? They were very detailed. Um, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a, each conference I think lasted about an hour, hour and a half, and I had over 14 pages of notes for each that I went through. Um, I had sort of big level questions, like I don't understand what your expert is saying here, or what your expert is saying here seems to be contradicted by what your other expert is saying, or your expert, um, you know, we'll talk about this in a bit, but your expert made X point, but if I went and I looked at the full document, yes, that, point is made in the document, but if you look at the full document, it actually says the opposite of X and the conclusion. Um, and there was a prime example of that that we can discuss in a bit. Uh, and so, so, and again, I didn't want any answers because um, I didn't want to put anyone on the spot. I just wanted to know them to know what I was thinking. 
Yeah, that's unusual. I know, you know certain judges use hot tubbing, which is becoming a little bit more common. So right? I come from an international arbitration background, so I do a lot of hot tubbing in my arguments. We didn't do it in this trial, but yeah. yeah. Interesting. So it sends a pretty strong message to the parties, and if they think there's a weakness, obviously puts pressure on them to at least think about the possibility of settlement. Sure. Valuable? Oh yeah, for you, sure. You do it again. Yeah. Well, I, what I would do again is leave it up to the, um, to the parties. If they wanted me to do it, I would do it. If they didn't want me to do it, I wouldn't do it, because it was really for their yeah. benefit. Um, I, asked, I asked one of the parties at one point, I stopped because their eyes were you know, freaked out, and I said, is this helping or is this just stressing you all out? And the lawyer said, <laughs> it is helping and it is stressing us out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious, Joe Doberg, in your practice, in private practice, but then on the court, obviously how you handle expert testimony. Well, uh, our system is different. I think it's important to understand that. Uh, heard uh, previous panels saying that, you know, if you come from a US perspective, you get a little bit enamored by the facts and by the evidence. Uh, the EU, EU system is different. It's a, a control of legality. Uh, contrary to what uh, Vice President Vestager said this morning, we're not supporting the commission, we're controlling it. That's our role. So my advice when I was in private practice to American clients is when in Rome, do as the Romans. It's right. a different system. Engage with the, uh, with the authority, with the commission or the national, uh, the national competition authorities. Because once you get to court, there is a limited amount of evidence and fact that you can adduce to the right. file, at least in the EU system. We are thinking about expert uh, witness, expert testimony, but it does take the parties to, uh, to actually suggest it. Uh, we are living in somewhat of a French administrative review straitjacket, applying German competition law. Right, so limits. Um, it's interesting that the two of you have very different backgrounds vis-a-vis -vis the antitrust laws. You come at it from a generalist litigation approach. You come at it from a deep competition approach. I'm curious if the two of you have different ideas on whether specialist courts, specialist tribunals, would maybe be better suited to handle all competition matters or certain types of competition matters, or whether the generalist court, generalist tribunal system works well. So look, if you'd asked me a year ago, if you'd talked to me about antitrust a year ago, I would have thought you were talking about a Taylor Swift song. I would have had no idea <laughs> about any of what you were talking about, about probabilities, substantial lessenings, or whatever. Uh, I knew that we had antitrust specialists at our firm, and if I had an antitrust issue, I would just send it to them. Um, and so recognizing that, what I say might um, sort of upset everyone in this room, which is, I really think antitrust practitioners make it seem more difficult than it is. Because at the end of the day, your job as a practitioner, as a litigator, as a litigator, is to convince a jury of lay people or to convince a judge that you are right. It, it, it can't be that so complicated that you can't do that because your job is to make it not complicated. Your job is to tell a story and tell that story in a way that's concise, in a way that's compelling, and in a way that makes the decision maker want to find in your favor. And 
any good trial lawyer, no matter what the um, subject matter, should be able to do that. And if your case is too complicated and you think you need a specialist judge, then you're probably not a very good trial lawyer. Um, and that's the issue. And um, you know, so I went through these economic reports and look, I'm not Adam Smith, I'm not John Maynard Keynes, I don't know, but I could understand, you know, English and I could understand arguments and I could. Yes, but can you understand economic English? Because no, you can't. there's well, a difference. Here's the thing, but if your expert, if your expert is not understandable to the decision maker, right. then they're not a good expert. Yeah. They might be yeah, a there's, phenomenal there's, there's economist. Not a good advocate if yeah. that's what you have. They might be a phenomenal economist, but they're not a very good expert. So if your your economic expert has to be able to also tell a simple, compelling, concise story. And if you have that with your expert and you have that as a litigator, then you don't need specialist court. You just need someone who's gonna put in the time and pay attention and try to, you know, and has some reasonable degree of intelligence that can sort of come to an outcome. But you might disagree. Well, I do agree that antitrust or competition law has become rather insular. Um, it takes a village. Uh, if you're dealing with a cartel case or a single firm co conduct, you may need somebody who has some notion of antitrust and economics. You may need a judge uh, who has some criminal background, uh, fact-finding, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Having said that, it depends on what you want to achieve. Uh, with the difference with Judge Reyes, uh, I always sit on a panel of three or five judges. It's so much nicer when you're by yourself. So you know, I, <laughs> it you is know. so much better, man. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, and I can't. And I can't even get fired. No, you can't get fired. I have six years, uh, which may or may not be what renewed. Are, what do you think? We want to know what you're thinking about. <laughs> That's on your mind. So um, there has been this proposition uh, for the past 20 years that it's complicated. If it's complicated, judges, please step back and let the authority decide because they know what they're doing. Uh, we were criticized for the past 10 years that our judicial review was ineffective. Uh, we were overturned because I'm sitting on a court of first instance, it used to be called court of first instance. In the intel judgments, the court said, well, you have to engage with the facts uh, and the economics. A point that David made also, um, timing. Uh, if a judicial review of a merger takes three years, we become the graveyard of mergers. I started out as a plaintiff's uh, lawyer in antitrust competition. Obviously, if Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle, Winkle yes. woke up, well, the Intel judgment from 2009 <laughs> is still on appeal. <laughs> we are about to give the Qualcomm judgment for the third time. And that is problematic because is the court going to be an hospice for single firm conduct <laughs> or rather an, uh, an emergency room? And right. I'd rather have specialists in the emergency room if that is what we want to achieve. If you want to have the commission which has, compared to the US system, a lot of power. If you want to have a control, maybe it might be a good idea not for the knowledge of the law, because anybody can understand the law, not in order to, um, to understand the economic evidence, because I agree with you, if the lawyers are good, one should be able right. to convince. But case management, 
managing a merger case, managing a cartel case, the issues that come again and again, if we're going to give a judgment in the merger case within a year, which we should, or if we're going to give uh, a judgment in, in a dominance case, which there is a sense of urgency, there might be a good idea to at least specialize the panels. Right. Yeah, I think the complexity, so in the US we have some district courts, and I don't know what you have on your docket, but we have some district courts that have thousands of cases, so a judge will not really have the resources and the time to dig into a complicated case, and the parties often- So that's not true, because the judge will have, the, the, the district, a federal district court judge is in total control of his or her docket. Fair enough. I, there is no one who can push me to do something at one point or another, you know, other than if I have a TRO that I have to decide. So however many cases you have on your docket, if you want to focus on putting in the time and energy that you need to put into a case, an antitrust case, a proxy liability case, you'll be able to do that. Right. Yes. Parties often propose lengthy schedules themselves, and then, of course, judges, many judges, will put it on the back burner because the parties themselves are saying, it's going to take me a year and a half to get through discovery. Merger control is different, but for a price-fixing case or a monopolization case, I think the average time to trial is now something like four and a half to five years. Well, I mean, if you look at the big cases, though, the Google trial, which was just in front of Judge Maida, went to, I think, trial in, I think it was a year or so. Um, the Asa Abloy went to trial within six months. Government cases the, for sure are faster. The, the Penguin yeah. case, right, the Penguin case went to um, uh, trial, I think, within half a year. I mean, yeah, if private parties want to, like, sit around and not move things, that's, you know, that's on them, but that's not the fault of the courts. Yeah. But I, 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 sorry, if I can just come in, I, I think we don't, I'm also trying to be strategic and work out who I'm more likely to end up in front of before I pick my side. <laughs> <laughs> side in this in this discussion but you know speaking as a as, as, as the patient I'd rather be in the emergency room with the specialists than in the hospice um, on, on that and also it's not I think we, we invest in a variety of different countries and it, the the quality of the benches differ considerably from from country to country certainly often in the courts of first instance where we'll end up um, and there, I think, it, it, from my perspective as a consumer, I'd probably plump for having experts sitting with a judge, maybe assessors sitting with a judge, or somewhere introducing some level of expertise in, in, into the courtroom. I think that's, that's sort of where I end up. Though I do love your idea of being in complete control. Um, that's of, a good one. The yeah. I think that's a lesson for everybody. We'd all like that one. Well, you uh, know what's interesting? Can I just jump yeah, in? Yeah, of course. Yeah. In terms of like development of the law is the, with respect to the timing yeah. issue, there are a lot of legal issues in antitrust that have not been decided by the circuit courts or by the Supreme right. Court. And the reason, for, and litigating the fix, which was in the Asa Abloy trial, is a perfect example. That has been percolating. There was a recent Fifth Circuit opinion on it, but that has been percolating for the last few years. And there are a lot of DC district decisions on litigating right. the fix, but no circuit decision. Why? Because what happens is the government brings a case. There's a merger that's gonna be set for date X. The trial yeah. happens before the date. The judge issues the opinion before that date. And if the judge rules in favor of the merging parties, the merger goes through. The government can take an appeal, but they're trying to undo something that's already happened. Um, the government took an appeal of the, of the United Healthcare case, litigating the uh, fixed case. The merger had gone through, and then they dropped the appeal. Um, if the court rules against the merging parties, then the deal's just off. They're not gonna like put the deal back two or three years waiting for a circuit court. So I, I do think in some situations, 
the district courts, in the US at least, have sort of final say on what happens because just from a timing and realistic logistics perspective, it's difficult to appeal the cases. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and if you think different. about how often the US Supreme Court actually has an antitrust case and issues a ruling, you're looking at maybe once a decade, every five to 10 years, really. And that's where it's different from the, from the European system because mostly all of our uh, competition judgments will be appealed. So one has to take into consideration that time also. Funnily enough, we have started discussing specialization, uh, but started off slowly with taking the easiest cases, the uh, trademark cases and the cases on which we can sit as a single judge and started specializing at that end. Uh, and that's going to be an ongoing discussion for the next year within the general court, should we move forward or not? And obviously uh, input from the outside world is welcome because most of our stakeholders actually think it is a good idea. Yeah. Um, David, a question for you. So, so given the enforcement thicket that I laid out in my sort of hypothetical at the beginning, you're, you're you know, general counsel for a company that crosses X number of jurisdictions. There is a little bit, I suspect, a little bit of a sense that my company could be investigated or, lit or sued for such a wide range of conduct. How do I craft a compliance program? So for example, I've had a client essentially say, so if I price too high, somebody's gonna accuse me of price gouging. If I price too low, I might get accused of predatory pricing. If I just follow the herd and price similarly to what everybody else is pricing, I might get accused of being involved in a price fixing conspiracy. If I change my pricing and vary it too much, well, then maybe somebody will say that's price discrimination. What the heck am I supposed to do? What's my policy supposed to tell my business people? How do you handle that? I think you, you've got to have competition experts, antitrust experts in the product flow. In the same way that you do privacy by design, you need competition folks who are aware of the products that are, that are coming through the pipeline and that are involved in, in the generation of those products. The closer you can get to the product, the less likely you are to have something that turns into an enforcement situation. The closer you can integrate competition, and I, I mean, this is, this is stuff that everybody knows, but it's, it's worth repeating because people keep getting it wrong, but the, the closer you can be to the business decisions, the, the more important people realize that it is this is absolutely critical to the business decisions that are making. You can't go off and make a business decision without putting it through some sort of antitrust or competition um, lane, uh, uh, net, sieve. Th that is the key, I think, to, to, to a compliance program. Because you can, you can have the best compliance program in the world. You can have, I'm sure, for example, and it's too soon to talk about this, Boeing has the most fabulous uh, program about how you install a, a door on the side of a jet. But it just doesn't work. And the same thing happens with, 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 the pro, with, with the compliance program. You can design a beautiful compliance program, but it, if, if, if it's not integrated into the decision making and, it's, and if the importance of those of compliance isn't understood by the key decision makers, then, it, then it's going to have no effect at all and it's not going to change the behavior sure. of the business. For sure. That's, that's the one thing I'd say. I think you know, on, on the M&A side, it, it's, if we do a lot of M&A and that muscle is fairly well developed. I think where it's slightly less well developed in terms of our compliance program is where businesses that have gone from a challenger status, um, where they are sort of, you know, done is better than perfect, 
uh, type philosophy, when they move into and they become larger participants in the economy, in their particular market, then it becomes difficult because then you're trying to change behavior. It, it's, it's difficult to put the guide rails in and to work out when you need to begin constraining behavior because, because the business is becoming larger or more important in, in, in the environment in which it operates. Those are a few thoughts around that how I think about this. Yeah, and I think for some of the, some of the clients in the room, I think there's a, there's a related issue which is as a company changes, its profile changes from an emerging challenger to an incumbent with a high market share potentially, there are at least there is a sentiment, depending on the jurisdiction, depending on the on the specific case, there's a sentiment that maybe you're held to a different standard potentially. So it complicates the compliance issue because not only do you have to make sure that your business people understand the importance of compliance in a different way than when they were a startup, but also that they understand they might be held to a different standard to to some degree. They are held to a different standard. They're much more visible. They're much more likely to attract. Um, either enforcement action or action from, from, from customers. But I, I think it's also, you know, it, it runs right through the organization, how you talk about yourself in your internal documents, how you talk about a merger that's coming up. These are all risks that that, that program needs to manage and it right. needs to begin managing them as the business needs to, as the business begins to grow. Yeah. Question for the two judges. Now, I don't know if you got to this point in the Asa Abla case, but when you're evaluating a merger and you're thinking about what's persuasive? What sort of evidence do you find particularly persuasive? Is it the economist? Is it the contemporaneous documents of the buyer? Is it the customer testimony? What are the things that you weigh as you're looking at the evidence that's presented to you? Do you I'll go first. I should probably say as little as possible on this because uh, we have a number of merger cases on the bench. I was overturned recently in the CK. Uh, judgment. Um, I would start with the law. You know, the law on mergers is underdeveloped. Uh, sure. So that's where I would start. Uh, as to the evidence, all of the above, uh, all you cited. And I would treat economic an analysis as evidence as such, not as a truth or two competing truths. It's interesting to hear you say that because I, my perspective in counseling is to say customer testimony means a lot, right? Because the customers are the ones who are affected ultimately. So if the customers don't complain, that should carry some weight. If the customers do complain, obviously that carries weight in a different direction. So, so I'm I curious. Mean, my only point is that the evidence we will be looking at is the one that has been presented to the commission. Right. And it is more or less limited to that. So make the best of the story and the evidence we have when you come to court and be precise. So I, I think the customer evidence, I think it depends on the case and how big of a customer and how much insight the customer actually has into the merger and the economics of the merger. So in the Asa Ablo case, um, the government um, had obtained uh, affidavits uh, from a lot of customers that they were concerned um, that the prices were gonna go up the roof, et cetera, et cetera. And then the defense went to those same customers and said, by the way, there's this divestiture. And then the, then the same people said, oh, okay, then that's fine, I'm not worried about it. And uh, there was a fight about whether all that information was admissible. And I was like, you can, I'll look at it, I'll admit it, but it's not persuasive at all because neither time did the customers have an understanding of 
what the merger economics were, what the divestiture economics were, what was being divested precisely, what the impact of the divestiture people thought would be. So I didn't find that um, very persuasive. What I found persuasive, uh, most persuasive to me actually, was the testimony of the uh, buyer of the divested assets. Because the, the, um, the economists were having fights about two things. One, as an economic theory matter, would two merging parties ever find a buyer who was actually going to be competitive in the area? Because the government's experts were saying, no, of course not. The merging parties want to divest this um, part of the company that they're going to be in competition with later to a very weak buyer. So it won't be heavy competition. And this is when I was looking at the expert reports. What I referenced earlier is um, they um, cited a government publication for this proposition, for the proposition that divestitures uh, aren't expected to work because the emerging parties will find a weak buyer. If you looked at the whole document, it went on to say, however, uh, that in their analysis of divested companies, the emerging parties actually found very strong buyers. And the reason for that was that they knew that they would have to get the divestiture and to have the merger go forward, they would have to get the divestiture passed uh, DOJ or the FTC or the courts. So they were actually incentivized to find a strong buyer um, so that the divestiture would be approved and they could go forward with their merger, um, which, I, which I actually find, find a far more compelling argument. And I was, um, so one of my questions to the plaintiff's attorneys during my question session was, this is a question I have for your expert. He cites this document, but if you look at the whole document, it says the exact opposite. So he knew that I was interested in this issue and he came to, uh, testify and he made the point and I said well as I'm sure your lawyers have told you though you know the rest of the document says something different it says that they have an incentive to find a strong buyer and he said yes but that's only because the buyers are concerned the merging parties want are concerned about getting past the regulators and concerned about getting past the courts and I said yes exactly and right. he said right but in my analysis I'm not taking that into consideration and I was like well okay <laughs> But that's what we're actually dealing with. I mean, yes, I mean, I guess. That's why you know, we're here. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I, I might not have to take in consideration a number of things that aren't reality, but um, I am in the real world. And, and to me, that was such a disconnect in terms of an economist saying, here's the economic theory, and a practical person saying, that doesn't comport to what actually happens in the real world, given real world uh, incentives. And he was just not, have, not having any of it. Um, and so I, obviously I didn't find that yeah. very compelling. Yeah, pro tip for the clients, if your expert is relying on part of a document and ignoring the rest of the document and it says something different, obviously not very persuasive, right? Um, but, sorry, but, just, and then just, uh, but what I did find persuasive, I'm sorry, was the, therefore what I found persua most persuasive in the divestiture case, and this one in particular, was the testimony of the, of the um, corporate executives from Fortune, which was buying the divested assets, because they're the ones who had the most economic incentive right. to ensure that they, were going, that they were getting legit goods, that it made economic sense, and that they were going to be able to compete. Because otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't buy the entity. Yeah, so you came away from it thinking they have the incentive and they have the ability to really be a viable alternative here? Yeah, and that they came across to me as, I, I did, the, the case settled, I didn't make a decision. But they did, came, they did come across to me as persuasive in, they, they wanted this asset. They had sound economic business reasons for wanting the assets, and they 
they wanted to compete with this asset. Right. Right. Nicholas, do we have time for another question, or do we have to move to? Yeah. Uh, Rich Gilbert, UC Berkeley. Uh, there are some jurisdictions that uh, often use uh, what's called uh, an economist hot tub, which is actually a technical term, uh, uh, where they get the economists together uh, before uh, the court without any actual lawyers uh, directly involved. Uh, have the honorable judges thought about whether that might be used more often in the U.S. and other jurisdictions? So I, so it, um, so I come from, an, so I also did international arbitration where hot tubbing often occurs. Um, I actually think it's good for the decision maker um, because the experts actually do tend to come to some consensus. Um, it's a nightmare for the counsel. If you ever want to be stressed as a litigator, be sitting by while two experts are hot tubbing in front of the decision maker, because inevitably they will come to a consensus that nobody likes, except for the decision maker. But I, I do think it's quite helpful. Uh, we're starting to think about it, uh, but uh, our problem is that these ten, in mergers, the decisions of the commission have gotten longer and longer and longer, reached the level of complexity of uh, competing or uh, corroborating theories uh, of harm. So it's a little bit hard from the procedural straitjacket to see where does it fit in uh, since uh, uh, we can't overturn or replace the decision uh, of the commission. But we're actively thinking about it. Uh, there are rules in the rules of procedure uh, of that matter. So it takes somebody to go ahead and actually Propose it Other questions? Yeah, I have a question for Judge Reyes. Um, so I followed that matter, and I've heard you talk on this panel, I guess, and I knew you, you, you know, you said you were a new judge, and it might have been daunting to the parties, maybe it was daunting to write an antitrust opinion, but when you weigh, I guess, trying to get parties to settle a matter, like, I, I just think that your understanding of these issues is so clear and thoughtful, and even though you only looked at one case, I've never tried an antitrust case before. How do you think about balancing, you know, wanting parties to settle and just get the matter over with versus actually potentially shaping the law or correcting, you know, some of the things like some of the stuff that you were just talking about? So I, I um, in all of my cases, I'm very pro-settlement. I knock heads of people together to do everything I can to get them to settle, not because I want stuff off of my docket. I'm going to be working, you know, like either way, right? I have. Hundreds of cases. If your case settles, it doesn't mean I get to go home any earlier. I just go on to the next case. I think it's more, I think it's better because from an, actually from an economic theory perspective, you would think that two parties who had competing incentives would be better able to reach a decision as to what the best way to proceed would be than for a random judge. I mean, it, and I told the parties this, and this was not on the record, but um, I don't think I'm revealing any confidential information. I went to a liberal arts school. I was a poli-sci major and English minor in Louisville in Lexington, Kentucky. I really, you want me deciding what the best way is for your company to divest these assets and the government? You want me to be deciding whether this merger goes through and if it goes through, how it goes through? Um, I, I just think, yes, I can do it. I had no doubt my competency and intelligence to be able to do it. But I think whatever they came up with was going to be such a much better outcome than whatever I came up with. Um, 
And I, I feel pretty strongly that, and, and a lot, and my cases tend to settle. I, I tend to settle a lot of cases because I really feel like by the time you get into a federal courtroom with a legit case, both sides have good arguments, right? right. Neither, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't a close call, they wouldn't be in front of you. Right. And in a situation where you have two sides with good arguments, I think it just always makes more sense for the parties to figure out how to proceed than not to proceed. And, you know, um, one of the things that I had asked the ASA Abloid lawyers on the record was, um, if I agree that the divestiture can go forward, can I make changes to the agreement before it goes forward? And the response was, well, judges never do that. And I was like, okay, but can I? And they said, well, you can. And all of a sudden, that changes the settlement dynamics. Because now it's not just, as I, as I said to their general counsel, it's not just you're going to win or you're going to lose. You might very well win, but I'm going to change this agreement. And you have no idea how I'm going to change it. And the way I change it might make sense to me. But because, right, again, antitrust Taylor Swift song, like <laughs> um, it, you might actually not be able to go forward with the merger even if you won. Um, and what I said to both sides is, if there's, a, if, if there's a dispute about how the divestiture should happen, you guys should figure that out. Um, thank you all, this has been a, a fantastic panel. Um, I have a question for the judges, which uh, we've been discussing a lot today, novel theories of harm um, in antitrust. And I'm curious as to how you approach evaluating the evidence versus um, perhaps less legal precedent to rely on um, when you're evaluating novel theories of harm and, and what factors you consider um, in wading into those areas? Uh, we're open to this. Uh, it depends then on how you back them up. Uh, but uh, definitely, I think there is an openness, at least uh, in my court, to say that the fact that the theory is novel is not a big deal. The question is, what comes next? What's the supported evidence uh, in favor of that theory of harm? And what the, uh, what's the standard of proof? Is it different uh, if it's an argument you've heard and there is case law, or if it's something that is rather remote or, or unlikely? So that's where it's going to, to possibly be a discussion shift. Um, so you mentioned that the European Commission's decisions are becoming more and more complex um, and, and in the details. What do you see as being the division of labor in making them more understandable for people who, or for judges specifically, who maybe haven't dealt with antitrust or competition law. So, you know, is that, does that fully lie with the European Commission as advocates of their cases, or is there room for judges to kind of step in and encourage more understandable decisions? Um, thank you for the question. Question. Uh, I'm very much in favor of simplicity, and I think the court uh, or the EU courts have benefited themselves to blame because for a number of years there were more and more procedural requirements, motivation, 
Uh, we went rather on the procedural part than on the substantive part of the judgment uh, in a case. Uh, once you come and start actually trying the substance of the case, well, my primary to, to enforce it is, you know, be clear and be simple in the story you're telling and don't tell us three stories at once with two or three alternatives because it's difficult for a judge to review an 800-page decision. It's like reviewing a book. Then you take, well, what's the main story here? Right. And I'll pick that one. I'll start unpicking and see what, what is basically what's supporting the decision and what's peripheral because there is a lot of noise, in my view, uh, in Antifrust for the moment bells and whistles, which do not give what I think was the, the original thoughts of having a more modern, more economic approach, it would give legal certainty. Not so sure. Not so sure of that part. Uh, and if we're seeing a movement in any way uh, in the EU is perhaps back to a more legal, uh, having clear rules uh, which one can rely on and then actually having forces, having straightforward stories uh, which are reviewable uh, by a judge. Do we have time, Nicholas? I, I can ask one last question. If last question, okay. So what, so it's the beginning of 2024, what's on the horizon from a perspective, David, in your case as a client, what are you concerned about in the EU? And in the U.S., from an antitrust perspective, what should be the hot topics people should be thinking about? AI, AI, AI. That's what we're thinking about. That's what we think about a lot of the time. I think you're going to see, um, we don't yet know what, what the impact of AI is going to be. I mean, people didn't realize when they held a, a, a smartphone for the first time that it was going to completely disrupt the taxi industry. And I think what sits on top of those large language models, we don't know what that's going to, what that's going to look like yet. And there are a lot of people who are thinking about that, and I think that that's going to be huge, and that's going to spawn tons of litigation. It is already. Judge Oberg, Judge Reyes? Um, well, we are thinking about AI. Uh, what I see on the horizon with the TMA and the DSA is going to be um, interim measures, injunctions, uh, more of the emergency room. Uh, type of litigation, uh, and we've already seen that in the first uh, uh, TMA cases uh, on one hand. Obviously, there are a number of other cases, but that's that's the one, that's the space I would be, be watching in terms of litigation. Makes sense. Uh, I think someone mentioned this earlier today, but I think um, the mergers impacts on labor markets is going to hit the courts in a way it hasn't before. We already saw it in the Penguin trial. We saw it in the... Um, updated guidelines or the new merger guidelines, and I think that that's going to be something that the DOJ focuses on quite yeah. a bit. Okay, sounds good. Thank you all. You listen to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrences. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrences website where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Loss and join the Concurrences group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.